Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, on today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Cal Ewing. Cal has a unique background in real estate investing. He's actually from Calgary, but his focus is on investing in the U.S. markets. He's done flips and wholesaling, but he now focuses on investing in real estate mortgage notes. So a note is a legal document that sets out all the terms of the mortgage between the borrower and the lender. Banks will recapitalize and sell some of their mortgages to the secondary market. I found this topic to be super fascinating and not something I'm very familiar with. It's definitely another avenue to invest in real estate without having to deal with tenants and toilets. That is unless you have to foreclose on a property. I think you'll enjoy the show. Definitely got me thinking about other areas to invest in. Hey, Cal, just want to welcome you to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. Maybe can you start off by just telling the listeners about yourself and how you got into real estate investing? Yeah, well, Corey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate being on your show. So I got involved in real estate investing back when I was going to UFC. I was actually taking a geology degree. And my cousins actually talked me into a network marketing thing. So I tried really hard to, you know, do the pyramid, whatever. <laughs> Worked really hard. It didn't really go anywhere. But part of their presentation had a lot of content from Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad Poor Dad. And I really liked what he had to say. So I got his book and read Rich Dad. And it blew my mind. I was just, I couldn't believe what I was learning from that book about real estate and rental properties and cash flow and just financial literacy and all of that. So I got really obsessed at that point with real estate. And I decided after reading that book that I wanted my career to be in real estate investing. And that was kind of my path forward. And so I actually, at that point, decided I would finish my geology degree, but that was going to be my backup plan. And my number one plan was going to be a real estate investor. And if I had to fall back on geology or use that to get to where I wanted to be in real estate, that's what I would do. So that's what started that fire. Oh, that's cool, man. You know, so many people reference that book, but I feel like a lot of people read it, get inspired and maybe don't end up taking action, right? Don't actually follow through and actually start on that journey. So can you start maybe kind of take us back to when you actually started? So what was the first deal you ever did and how did it go? That kind of thing. Yeah. So I actually ended up taking some courses through Rich Dad, Poor Dad's program. And the problem with so many of those courses back then, this was before a lot of the online training that you could find on bigger pockets and stuff. So you'd have to buy this expensive course. And a lot of times it would be US content. And being a Canadian, I didn't know the difference at that point. I never bought a property. So I assumed that all of those strategies I was learning in their programs could be done here in Canada. And so I tried to build a business here. I don't even know what I was doing. Just wanted to buy houses and maybe wholesale or maybe get rental. but the strategies really weren't working. And so I ended up finding another Calgarian who was investing in the US in Las Vegas. And this was right around 2008 and nine. So this is when the market was completely crashing down there. And there was the huge wave of foreclosures, especially in Vegas, which is one of the hardest hit cities in Nevada is the hardest hit state for foreclosures. And so he had a team built and he was actually buying houses at the foreclosure auctions. And he was teaching Canadians how to do the same at the time. And so I saw his presentation. I was a little skeptical, but I was really passionate about reaching my goals. And I thought, well, this might be my ticket. Maybe it's the US, maybe it's not Canada after all. And so I went down and met his team down in Vegas and still not knowing what I was doing, but I had some friends that we all pulled some money together to buy a property. And 
got plugged in with his real estate agents and his whole team. And we got our first property in Vegas at the foreclosure auction. And we did some just light rehab to it and then ended up selling it off. And I think we only made like nine grand on the flip, but it was a really short flip, <laughs> kind of a lipstick thing. That's, that's that was enough. Yeah, it's better than, you know, zero or, or negative, right? But certainly not a uh, big lift, that's for sure. It wasn't a slam dunk by any means, but it was proof of concept. We call base hit, right? It's like you yeah. got money back, return on investment. So how long did you hold that property for and, and do the rental for it? Basically oh, I think return? it was only about six months. Oh, and then, oh yeah. <laughs> I was thinking you were going to say six weeks. Okay, that's actually a while. Well, hold, it might have even been shorter. It was so long ago. It was a couple months anyways. I yeah. see. Yeah. Okay. Because you're in Calgary, right? You're yeah, still, you're still in living Calgary. in Calgary. And so you didn't end up doing any investing right here in, in the city at all? You just kind of moved straight into the States and started doing real estate investing down there? This house I'm in is the only Canadian property I've ever bought. So I find that super fascinating. I'm glad you're on the show because I've had other investors from the States reach out and say they, you know, inquire about being on the show, but I always feel that it's so different and, you know, bigger pockets, great podcast, but like you said, the content doesn't always match and even the wording and, you know, the mortgages are different, all that stuff, but, uh, the rehab costs, everything is so different that it's great to have you on who actually have been successful investing down there. And you can kind of share with the listeners some of those nuances and differences and stuff that, you know, I'm looking forward to jumping into this. Sure. Okay, so then after that, so you went in 08, 09, it was in Vegas. And then after that, you just kept looking for these foreclosure properties. Is that how you started to scale? Well, at that point, same person that was sort of mentoring me, he built a team in Phoenix because Phoenix was the next city to crash. Vegas first, Phoenix second. And so he started doing the same in Phoenix and recommended that my partners and I, we moved over to that market now. And so we got another property the same way through the foreclosure auction. And this time what we did is we cleaned it up and put in a tenant and we held on to that property for two years. And then once we saw signs of market going up again, we knew we'd reached the bottom. And so we sold it about a year after it started going up in value and got most of the appreciation out of it in that two-year period. I now regret selling it, but I bet, I bet. prices tanked and then they climbed really quickly after. So we did really well on that one in a short rental. Oh, that's awesome. And then with the coaching, I think a lot of people do sign up and pay for coaching. And for sure, you're going to learn some things, but then sometimes it's hard, I think, to actually put some of that learning into practice and use it. And were you pretty happy with the coaching overall? Like it, because it obviously sounds like you actually did start to invest and do things. Yeah. So his name is Mike Wolf. I don't know if you've even met him because he does a lot in Calgary still. But yeah, so he's a Canadian. He was kind of my first mentor and person I really looked up to because he was like me. He was from Calgary. And he just started doing that on his own for his own investing purposes and then helped other Canadians who are interested because there's so many Canadians out there that like the idea of owning property, especially in a place like Vegas or Phoenix or some, you know, Florida where they can go where it's warm. And so it wasn't like a formal mentorship, but just copying what he was doing and sitting down with him over coffee it really helped me get the confidence. And then having his team to rely on as a complete newbie was so helpful. I had no clue what I was doing, but I knew I wanted to do it. And just having that all set up for me was a great place to start. So I definitely recommend mentor. I always have a mentor. I kind of jump from mentor to mentor as I progress through my career, but I've always had a mentor to get me to that next step in my real estate career. And so I recommend everyone have someone they can rely on so you don't make mistakes and so you can grow faster. Yeah, for sure. It might cost you some money, but it sure can save you a lot of money and time, you know, risk, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, it's money well spent for sure. 
The other thing, trying to look for a bit of your backstory, and I thought, and I knew you were investing in the U.S. I thought, oh, he's probably a dual citizen. He probably, you know, has family down there. Because in my opinion, it can feel maybe a bit safer if you have family and you're like, you go down and you kind of learn the market, you learn the area, that kind of thing. I would feel a bit nervous just because I wouldn't know the neighborhoods. I wouldn't know, you know, that kind of stuff. So how have you kind of mitigated that? Yeah, so I'm not a dual citizen. My dad was, and using his dual, it did help me in my initial company that I set up down there. But even that I realized was the wrong thing to do for tax purposes. So it didn't help me in the long run. But really, the key is, as a Canadian, is to have a good cross-border accountant and someone that can understand the taxation on both sides of the border. That's number one, so that you can set up the correct entities. And then once you've got those entities set up, it doesn't matter if you're Canadian at all. Being a, a U.S. citizen could help you in some ways, I guess, but it didn't really hinder me at all. And then as far as learning the markets, I think it's more about just having a good team. So depending on what your strategy is, you know, having a good real estate agent that you're working with or contractors that know the area, even just locals that live there that can advise you, just other investors and that kind of thing that you can rely on. The great thing about the US as opposed to Canada is there's so much online information. And that's what I really love about the US is you can find neighborhood data, you can find information on homeowners and their divorce history and their, you know, if they're deceased or not, if they're in foreclosure, like all of that information is public, which is kind of scary if you're a citizen having everyone be able to find out about you. But as a real estate investor, it's so helpful because you can just get so much information from here in Canada just on your computer to help you make those decisions and figure out market choices. Yeah, that is true because we do have a lot of protection in Canada where it's harder to find out, right? Like I was listening to one show, might have been on Bigger Pockets, where this guy was in a different country, like he was somewhere in Europe, and he was wholesaling properties in the US making great money doing it remotely. So he's like basically becoming a millionaire, not even living in the US, from the US, right? And I thought, wow, is that ever fascinating, like to be able to do something like that from a totally different country? Yeah. Using, well, using that the information that's available. It sounds like they could even call like, oh, the uncle down the street lives at this address. So I'm going to call them to find out about that property. And it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I agree. And I think you're right. Like two things. Wholesaling is a great way to get started down there because you're not glued to your mistakes, right? So if you do end up finding a property in a bad neighborhood, if you're wholesaling it, you're going to know pretty quickly if you're going to have a buyer or not. And so, you know, if you can't find a buyer, hopefully you've got in your contract a way to get out of it without losing money. But if you start finding buyers, you're going to start knowing that neighborhood a lot better and, and get a feel for things without taking on any personal risk by buying a property and then finding out the hard way. So I think wholesaling is a good way to start. But the other thing is, is if you do, you know, get a property under contract, that's when you really need to start investigating the neighborhood and talking to property managers and talking to the attorneys and talking to real estate agents and really getting a feel for that area. And even in Canada, right? Like if you're investing outside of your own city during that due diligence period, you've really got to go hard to make sure you've got a grasp on the area. For sure. For sure. Yeah. You said you're a degree in geology. Did you work at that for a number of years? And are you still doing that today? Like, what do you do for like a daily job today? Or are you just a full-time investor? Yeah, I'm not in oil and gas anymore, but I was lucky enough to have a night job. So we were on call a lot with the rigs and we were steering wells. And so there's a lot of downtime in that job. So that's where I built most of my business is during that downtime in the middle of the night. I was analyzing deals and doing all my marketing while I was at work, which was nice. Um, so that was you. a blessing. Yeah. And now I'm actually, I am working again. I actually went back to work and I'm an underwriter right now for a private lending company here in town. Oh, so, interesting. Okay. So a little bit closer to what, like 
the investment side where you're going to be analyzing deals, that kind of thing? Yeah. So the skills I've learned from being in the U.S. has really helped me in my underwriting job, but also understanding that private money space is helping me as an investor as well. Just how they analyze a deal from a lender's perspective is really valuable. So they work hand in hand. It's pretty good. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And then because we kind of got a little bit of the backstory, but can you kind of tell us how you scaled and maybe where you're at today? Did you end up buying and holding? Like what strategy are you kind of implementing today? And maybe just a little bit more of the middle there. Yeah. So there's been a lot of trial and error because living remotely, I've had to figure out what my niche is because there's a lot of strategies out there that you can do and some work better than others as a remote investor. So I did a lot of wholesaling when I was getting going and found that to be lucrative, but an incredible grind and quite difficult without really good boots on the ground in that market. So I was wholesaling houses in Houston. So that was good. I tried my hand at some fix and flips in Houston as well, even kept a couple rentals. So I was doing that, but I just found with the wholesaling business, you know, you have to rely on a good team. And my key guy ended up getting an opportunity and left me. So I didn't have decent boots on the ground. And so that's where I kind of decided that, okay, these short-term strategies of wholesaling and flipping where you get paid once and you get a nice chunk of cash, but then you got to keep doing it over and over again to stay alive and feed your family. Those are hard to do remotely. And so I've actually started going on more of a passive income kick in the last couple of years. And I'm actually into note investing now, where instead of buying the properties, it's a lot easier to just buy mortgages from banks and become the lender. And then getting all that same cash flow you might get as a landlord without all the headaches of being a remote property owner. So just being the bank and having those borrowers make their payments. And that's been my latest strategy because it's just so much less stress from up here in Canada. We're going to dive into note investing because I have no idea. Like I did a quick little search, but I definitely would like to get more information from you about it. But yeah, the Houston thing. So if someone was looking to try to maybe do the wholesaling, that kind of thing remotely, how do you get that comfort level with people you're working with? Did you end up flying down there and meeting people, getting face to face? Like, how did you get to a point where you're like, hey, I feel safe working with this person and I trust them? Or was it through referrals from the coach? Yeah, a little bit of trial and error. So I recommend anyone that's wanting to wholesale remotely is to maybe start in a place if you have someone that you know. So if you have, like you mentioned earlier, having a family member in a certain city is helpful or a friend or a coworker, just that somebody you can trust from the get-go is very helpful and they can just be your eyes and take photos and video and that kind of thing. Um, and then once you get established, then you can start networking with actual contractors or real estate agents and build those relationships and have more of a professional look out for you. But I actually started with a guy that was on my fantasy baseball league. <laughs> he lived down in Texas and we've done you know trades and stuff. So that's how we knew each other is from playing fantasy baseball. And he just happened to be interested in real estate as well and had a little bit of background. And so I was like, okay, you're the only guy I know in Houston. So let's go and do this. And so it got me going. And then as we progressed, I ended up finding some more professionals to help me out. And my childhood friend growing up on the school bus, she actually married a guy from Texas and moved down to Texas. And so he ended up being my number one boots on the ground guy. So just happened to be a connection from here at home. So that's how I got going. But anyone that's thinking of doing it remote, one way to do it is actually to partner with other wholesalers or other real estate investors. So it's really fairly easy to find deals, even from up here in Canada, in the US, just with all the online sources I was telling you about, you can find deals. And then if you can partner up with another wholesaler that's in that market, you can come up with a way to split the profits and then they can handle kind of the due diligence on the ground and they can bring in the buyers and have open houses and things like that, that you can't really do. 
So that's a really good relationship because you can focus on acquiring the deals and then they can help you make the money by selling them off to other investors at the end. So that's a good way to do it, I think. Yeah, that's great advice. What are your thoughts on U.S. real estate? Like I know, you know, in Calgary or sorry, Canada, it's different depending on where you are as to whether the market's pulling back or is it appreciating that kind of thing. Are you kind of bullish or, you know, what are your thoughts on the U.S. over the, say, the next three to five years? And is it also market dependent? Probably is, I'm sure. Yeah, well, Canadian real estate to me seems very foreign. <laughs> it's funny, but I'm more nervous to invest in the U.S. or in Canada just because I've never done it. And so to me, it's a, it's a new thing I'd have to learn. So I'm really comfortable in the US. I understand how everything works now. And so, again, it's very market dependent for sure. But I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity just because of where the market's heading. Like during COVID, almost every major city, and even here in Canada, right, we saw prices go way up. And then now interest rates have gone on the climb and now things are starting to cool off. And so I think there's going to be some opportunity to buy some real estate down there, to, especially long-term buy and hold, where you can get it at a good deal right now and prepare for the market to go up again eventually, but maybe not so rapidly like we saw during COVID or at the tail end of COVID. So, I mean, you could probably agree, like everyone needs a house, right? No yeah. matter what happens, people need homes. And so that's why I love real estate so much is like, it's one thing you can always count on is that you know, single family homes, people need a place to live, whether it's to rent or buy. So yeah, I feel good about the US in general and real estate in general. Yeah, I do find it interesting how you've learned the US investing side, but you've kind of stayed away from Canada. And yet to me to dive into the US seems so much scarier, just more complex as well, because because of the differences, you know, with the laws and those type of things. We won't have time to jump into it. But I know that there's a difference between like how you structure your company. And so for tax reasons, like if you were going to do this into the US, so that way you're not being taxed twice, right? Is that right? Could you get maybe just kind of explain that just a little bit? Yeah, depending on what type of entity that you've set up, there are ways that you could get taxed twice and not an accountant. So it's kind of confusing to me, but LLCs are what most US investors set up and they own their properties in LLCs. And so if you talk to an American accountant or American lawyers, they're going to tell you to set up an LLC. And the problem is that the Canadian government or CRA, they don't recognize the same company structure, I guess, or the same tax advantages that you would get in the US. So if you have an LLC set up, you could end up getting part of that tax twice. And like I said, it's complicated. Talk to a cross-border accountant, but I've talked to numerous cross-border professionals and the general consensus is, is set up a limited partnership in the US, not an LLC. And then you're not taxed twice. You're basically paying the personal tax rate and you're paying a lower rate in the U.S. and then you pay the higher rate in Canada, but you get a tax credit for what you've already paid down in the U.S. on the Canadians. Makes sense. Okay. So, yeah. And now I've heard of other investors going and buying like an existing business that even has a line of credit built in. I remember this one lady I was chatting with, I think she spent $6,000 and bought a company in the U.S. and it had like a $50,000 line of credit already built into it. Have you seen stuff like that and heard of other investors doing that? Heard about it. I'd like to actually know more about how all that works. But I think all of those things are great to investigate. But again, you need a strong cross-border professional. And that's the number one key if you're going to venture down into the States is cross-border. And you know, people can reach out to me if you want some referrals. But another way to find good cross-border people is just go on Facebook and join. There's a bunch of different Facebook groups for Canadians investing in the US. And you talk to some people in there that have already found good accountants. And that's your number one step is getting that 
handled and yeah. mistakes. And getting that correct right out of the gate. You don't want to make yeah. those you know tax mistakes for sure. Okay, so let's circle back now. Let's go into note investing. I find this fascinating and I don't really know much about it. So maybe just start off 10,000 foot view and just kind of explain what that is. Yeah, so again, not really fluent in Canadian laws and that kind of thing. So I don't even know if you can do this in Canada. I don't think you can. But in the States, you can basically, well, there's two ways you can do it. You can buy a house and then finance it to a new buyer. So you can sell it off and find someone that maybe has poor credit or maybe they're self-employed and can't get a traditional mortgage with an A lender. Like a rent to own, is that what you mean? Is it Not even a rent to own, owner finance or seller finance. So you can sell the property, find a buyer and say they have 20% down payment for the house. And so they'll pay you up front the down payment and then you can create a note, a promissory note for a mortgage. Okay. And it's just the same as if you go to CIDC to buy a house and they have a mortgage on your house, right? You got a first mortgage that you pay down every month, right? So you can create that as the person selling off this house, you can create a note so that your buyer pays you monthly, just like a CIBC mortgage or a you know, TD bank mortgage. All right. And so now you're the lender, you own the mortgage note, you don't own the property anymore, but you're the bank. Okay. And so that borrower that bought that house from you, now they owe you a monthly mortgage payment every month. Okay. And your security is the house, the collateral. Okay. So if they stop paying, then depending on what state you're in, you follow the foreclosure laws of that state and you can sell off the house and foreclose on them or, you know, negotiate a cash for keys situation where they, you know, you give them a few thousand to move out and then they deed the property back to you. So the great thing about certain states in the U S is you can foreclose really quickly. Like Texas, it's less than six months. It's a couple months to foreclose. Whereas in Canada, it can be you know, a year, a year and a half, two years to foreclose as a lender. So it's a great way to control a property and get really great return on your money without worrying about repairs and, you know, all the landlord headaches of vacancies and all of this stuff we always talk about, right? As the lender, it doesn't matter if something breaks. If the toilet breaks, no one calls the bank and says, hey, CIBC, my toilet's broken, come fix it, right? No one does that because you're just the lender. So it's a great way to get a passive return on your money without all the headaches and it's still secured to real estate. So that's kind of the owner finance way of creating a note. Is, and that, is, that's a is it a VTB? Is, are we talking, is it like a vendor take back thing? Yeah. So you're, you're saying there's equity in the house, right? Mm -hmm. Is that what you're saying? So we have a seller, let's say it's simple numbers. Let's say it's a $300,000 house. So you're going to approach the owner who has equity and then they're wanting to take equity out or can you kind of go through that part? Well, yeah. So I'm approaching it. This my first part of the example is if say you buy a property like at an auction or something, right? So okay. you you own it. Say like, Corey, you go down to the auction, foreclosure auction, say, and you buy the house. And you could either, you know, fix and flip it or you could keep it as a rental. Or what I'm saying is you could actually own or finance it or do a vendor take back and sell it off, collect 20% up front, and then create a mortgage note, and then your buyer pays you. So now you've got a steady stream of passive income coming in. So that's one way you could have a note, okay, a mortgage note. Now, another way you could do it is to actually buy mortgages from banks in the US. And so this is what I do a lot is calling up asset managers at banks and asking them if they have mortgages that they're selling. And a lot of times banks, various reasons, they'll sell off mortgages because maybe they've got too many on their books. A lot of times if the borrowers don't have a good payment history or they're not performing right now, so they're not making their payments currently, then a bank will sell off that mortgage 
for a really big discount. So you can buy notes, mortgage notes for 60 cents on the dollar, 70 cents on the dollar if the borrower is not currently paying. And basically you just buy it from the bank and then you can negotiate the price down. You buy the mortgage from the bank and now you take their spot. So that homeowner now owes you mortgage payments and the, and the principal on the mortgage and you're the bank. And now you can either work with them to try and get them paying again, because sometimes it's a really simple solution. You know, maybe through COVID, they weren't working for a while. So now they're way behind. You know, there's ways you can work with them to get them paying again so that they can stay in their home. And you bought a mortgage. So now let's say they owe 100,000 on the mortgage. You bought it for 50,000, right? So they owe you 100, but you only paid 50 and you get them paying again. And you can basically double the interest rate because you bought it at half the price, if that makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. That's cool. But definitely we need to dig more into this. So we can dig more into it. <laughs> yeah. So what about the terms of the mortgage, that kind of thing? So let's because I know that some people have a 30 year, they're actually locked in at a fixed rate for up to 30 years, right? Yeah. Most of the mortgages I look at are 30 year locked in mortgages down in the States, which is a lot different than Canada. So could there be an advantage in that regard as well? If they've locked in at a low interest rate and you can buy that mortgage, you would get that mortgage at that interest rate that they lock in? Well, they would owe you that interest rate that the mortgage originated at. So in the last year, when there are two and 3% mortgages, those are harder to make money on because the rates are so low. But getting before that and, and now when rates are at like 7%, those are the type of mortgages you want to buy because the interest rates are really high. So if you now buy the mortgage and take the place of the bank, if you paid par for that loan, then you're making that 8% or 7% that the mortgage originated at. And you're going to make that for the entire 30 years because there's no term on it. Wow. Fixed rate for 30 whole years. Yeah. It sounds really neat. Interesting. Because mm -hmm. you're the bank now. Higher interest rate is better for you. Exactly. And, and yeah. clearly banks, they're only going to sell off stuff that's giving them headache, right? Or, or that's like distressed or having issues and like, hey, this person's going into default. So then you, how does that play out? So now you purchase this property. How are you doing maybe some due diligence up front? So you're not just taking on something that's like a total dumpster fire. Yeah. So property value, number one. So you want to get a broker price opinion or realtor CMA to figure out what that property is worth in its current condition. You definitely want to do that. And one thing I'll say before you buy a note, it's a little different than buying real estate where you have a, you know, maybe seven days inspection period. You've got really tight time window with notes. A lot of that's not there. So you don't have to put down a deposit. You don't have to worry about losing your earnest money. You basically make an offer. And if that offer is accepted, you don't have to put any money down up front. So there's no risk. And then you usually have almost as much time as you want. Like you can negotiate your due diligence period and there's no real money that you're putting on the line like you are when you're buying a property, which I really love. So then, yeah, you want to establish the value and usually having a great realtor on your team can help you do that. And then you want to figure out if there's equity there. Okay. And the mortgage note might be higher than the value of the property, but you just want to make sure you're paying a cheap enough price for the loan so that the value of the property is more than what you're buying it for. And that way, if you have to foreclose on the borrower, you don't ever have to worry about losing what you paid for that mortgage note because the property itself is worth more. So that's the big thing with the property. You also want to make sure there's no other title issues or anything. So you want to do a title search to make sure there's no liens or judgments that could affect you as the lender and have someone foreclose out from under you or something like that or issues with title. 
And then you want to check the borrower's payment history. And usually the mortgage lender will have good notes and a, a record of all the payments and communications with that borrower. And you want to make sure that you can understand the situation that the borrower was in to cause them to get into trouble. So if they're showing signs like they want to get back on track and they're trying to get caught up on their mortgage, that's a really great candidate to work with them and buy that mortgage and help them. You know, you can renegotiate the terms of the loan and help them to stay in their house and, and start making payments again. Or maybe they're vacated the property and they're not there anymore. And that's an opportunity where you can foreclose or take the property back. And now you've got property that you can do whatever you want with. So depending on the borrower's behavior, that kind of dictates the exit strategy when you're buying a note. And then how would you get to know some of their backstory? Are you actually just going to call them directly and talk to them? No, a lot of it's through the servicing. It's called servicing notes. So the company that services the loan for that lender, they should be taking really good notes of email communication and phone calls they've made to the borrower. Maybe if they had to knock on the door to talk to them, they'll keep notes of all of that. And that's usually what you're going to use to try and figure out the story. What kind of cash, what kind of capital would you actually need? I know it's going to vary depending on the property value, that kind of mm -hmm. thing, but like, you know, starting out, you know, is $50,000 enough or what are your thoughts on like to get started in something like that? Yeah. That's the other great thing about notes is you can get started as low as like, I've seen some that were for sale for 6,000. <laughs> really that great. That's a great way to start. Hey, I'll just take a $6,000 mortgage. Really? Yeah. And you, you can actually do something with that and maybe make a small profit? Possibly. Yeah, depending on the property. And sometimes the lower ones, there's not a lot of room if you have to foreclose, right? Because the foreclosure costs are going to be set. And so if you're dealing with smaller numbers and you have to foreclose, just the attorney costs could eat up your investment. So I like to be kind of in the 30000 minimum up to 250000 for the note purchase price. And so that's kind of the property value you're looking at too, kind of 250 to 300 maximum. Interesting. When you do have to foreclose, what type of cost do you typically, like with a lawyer and stuff, what kind of fees would you have to pay? So that's really dependent on the state. So some states are judicial foreclosure states, which means that the foreclosure has to go through the court. And so that's usually a more drawn out process and some of the costs could be higher. Other states are non-judicial. So Texas, for example, you can actually just hire an attorney to handle the foreclosure for you. They'll do all the filings and everything that's needed. And then they would go to the auction, the foreclosure auction and auction it off on your behalf. And so that could range from like $2,000 up to in some states, like the big judicial states, it could be $6,000, $8,000. So it's really, you need to know what the state laws are before you go and buy a note. So you can factor that into your offer price and your due diligence. Interesting. And then what percentage would you say that of notes that you pick up that you actually have to foreclose on and how many of can you actually revive and turn it into a good situation for everybody? Well, it kind of depends on your plan because a lot of times you'll get a big list of notes that the bank is selling. Okay. And you have to go through and you can look at the ones that are paying because sometimes they'll sell off loans that are paying and there's no issue, right? They have a great track record and they're continuing paying. So that one's probably not going to foreclose. Or you're, you might be looking at loans where the borrower has been making sporadic payments over time. So maybe you can get them back on track and avoid foreclosure. But then you're going to see others that the house has been vacant for two years and there's no chance you're going to be able to revive that. It's going to go into foreclosure no matter what. And maybe the banks even started the process and they just want out and you can take over the process already. So the answer to that question depends on what type of note you're yeah, wanting to buy. Taking on. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And then like what's a timeline? Like you did mention a couple exit strategies. What are you typically holding a note for? Is it better just to go long-term if you're going to be the bank and just kind of 
hold that property, you know, for a number of years. Well, that's why I really love it is it's really flexible. So a note could be your long-term cash flow strategy that you hold on to. So say you buy a note, it's a 30-year note and you buy it maybe three years in, right? So there's 27 years left and you could just hold on to that until it's paid out, just keep collecting the payments. Or what you could do, let's say that the borrower hasn't been performing, they're three months behind, you buy it at a discount and then you get them paying again for a full year. So now they've got a year of payments on the record and then you can sell that note to another investor or a hedge fund at like say 80 cents on the dollar and get your money back plus make a profit and you've only held on to that note for a year. So it's almost like rehabbing the borrower, kind of like a house, right? You buy a house that's in really rough shape you fix it up and then you sell it for a profit. Well, you can do that with notes as well. You buy a note where it's in rough shape, the borrower's having all kinds of troubles. You help solve their problem and get them paying again on track and get them paying regularly. And then suddenly that note has more value to a note investor that just wants performing mortgages that they want to buy. And so you can just sell it at a higher price. And that's a, like a two-year investment. So it really depends. Okay, and how did you get into this? What was the, like, the first time you were like, someone told you about note investing and how did you actually get started? I got started from a different concept, kind of what I was telling you earlier, where you can own or finance. So you buy a house and then you find someone with poor credit, take the down payment and then create a mortgage for them. So I was doing deals like that. And so I like the idea of being the lender, but part of that strategy is you still have to find the property, then you got to find the buyer. Then you got to set up the mortgage. So there's a lot of work in it, but that's kind of the starting point. I, I was doing deals like that. And then again, another mentor, I met a guy that's been buying notes for, I don't know, like 18 years and he teaches people. And so I realized that that's kind of the space I wanted to learn more of. And so I started working with him and attended some of his trainings and, and just started doing it. And yeah. <laughs> do you do it all on your own or do you kind of have a team set up to help you like with the analyzing and that kind of stuff of the deals? I do it on my own. I have a team of virtual assistants that help me. But as far as the business itself, I do it on my own. And I do this all across the US. That's the other good thing is because node investing is a little bit less hands-on than owning property. So it's just about having someone that can do the due diligence for you. And then you don't really need to have a full team on the ground in that city once you've bought it like you would if you wanted. So closing a deal in, in Ohio this month, I've gotten a bunch in Texas last month. So I'm looking at probably 80% of the states I'd be open to buying in just because it's really less hands-off than owning property. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And like with all investments, there's always risk, right? Sometimes the bigger the return, the bigger the risk. So what are some risks to this and have you lost money on deals? And maybe you could explain some of that. Yeah, so a couple of risks, again, would be not figuring out the value of the property. So you need a really good feel for what it's worth and it's as is condition when you're making your offer on the note. Because if you pay too much for that note, so let's say you buy a mortgage for 50,000, okay? And then you end up having to foreclose on that borrower, but you make a mistake and the house is worth 55, okay? And then you take it to the foreclosure auction and no one bids on it. And now you own it. Because if no one bids on it, it's called a RTO or... BP, no, I'm losing my acronyms here. <laughs> well, that's okay. Real estate owned, REO, sorry. There, there's so many of them. REO, REO real okay. estate owned. So that means the lender takes back the property and owns the property. Well, what if the property now needs a ton of rehab and you realize it's not worth what you thought and now you own it? 
And so now you're going to have to figure out, you know, coming up with cash to remodel the property and that kind of thing. So you want to make sure that there's enough equity that if you do foreclose, it's definitely going to sell at the auction. Or if you have to take ownership of it, you have the ability to take it to the next exit plan, whether that's to rent it out or fix and flip it or whatever. So property values are the big one, I would say, is you want to make sure you understand that. And then, so in my mind, like sounds great. And I really find this fascinating, but those notes are obviously connected to a property, which is connected to a story. And, you know, when I've been in and out of property, sometimes quite distressed or, you know, some of these situations, you go inside and it's home is half torn apart. How would you protect yourself to make sure that you're not picking up one maybe in that situation? Can you have an inspection done? Do you have any current photos of the property inside? So again, it really depends on the property. You can have someone drive by, but you really can't have an inspection done. You can't really go inside. And so that's where you need to rely on someone to do a good drive by, get a feel for like if they can see a little bit inside, maybe even have someone knock on the door. It's kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, a little sketchy to be like, hey, I'm buying a house in your neighborhood. I wanted to see if you're selling, but have someone actually knock on the door and just to see if you can get an idea of what's in behind. It's a little bit misleading, but I mean, this is a, a big investment, right? So just trying to get a feel for what's inside. Sometimes there's recent photos on Zillow and some of those other listing websites that the house sold recently. So you'll be able to get a really good idea of what's inside. And then also the lender will usually have notes on if it's vacant or if people are living in the property when you buy the loan. And so if someone's living there, then you know it's at least livable. If it's been vacant for two years, like there's some loans, they haven't been paying for six years and there's been no one living in the property for six years. So that you got to expect there's going to be a lot of things going wrong inside, right? Plumbing and electrical and things like that. So if it's been vacant a long time, you need to factor in that you're going to probably have to take time and money to do repairs if you end up taking the property back. If it's newly purchased or you see recent photos or people are living in it, then you can assume it's going to be at least livable and decent condition. Would you evaluate a property differently or a note differently if it's renter occupied or versus owner occupied? Maybe a little bit, again, because tenants don't take as good care generally of the property. But again, it's more about how much equity is in the property and that BPO, that current market value that's established by a local realtor that knows the market. And again, you're the lender. so you're foreclosing usually, or you're getting payments. A lot of times you're not really getting the property back. Like the main goal is to either just foreclose and get your money out or get the cash flow from the payments. Yeah, for sure that is some risk, right? Because you couldn't do an, an actual yeah. inspection or an actual appraisal say, but you can run comps based on numbers in the neighborhood, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And have you had a situation, you know, it's maybe something you learned from where you bought a note and kind of regretted it? Not a note properties where I really regretted it. So when I was investing in Houston, I was really eager to get my first deal done. This was my first wholesale deal. I put up bandit signs across the city. And I so I was really eager to buy a property. And I found one that looked like a decent deal, but there wasn't a ton of room in it. But I was like, yeah, there's enough. Like, I think we can make this work. And so this was going to be my first fix and flip. And sure enough, we had the remodel done. Open house was set for a Sunday. And that's the same Sunday that Hurricane Harvey decided to come by and flood most of Houston. And so our property flooded on the day that we had our open house scheduled. So that was a situation where I, I definitely regretted it. We had flood insurance on the property, but we had to do the remodel a second time after it had flooded. And during that time, that market, that specific neighborhood went down in value temporarily, but it went down about a hundred thousand in value after that flood. And 
yeah, so that was a big regret. I think the lesson learned there was a couple of things. Being pretty hasty and just wanting a deal. I think a lot of new investors, you just want to get your deal done, right? And so sometimes you're willing to take maybe lower margin just to make it work, or you're willing to look past certain things just because you want a deal. And I think in that case, the numbers weren't great, but I was like, yeah, they're good enough. What's the worst that could happen? And then a hurricane came. So I think sometimes the lesson learned there is to be patient, especially when you're new. You want to make sure all the numbers really work for you and you've got extra cushion. And because you are new and there could be some mistakes made instead of just jumping on the closest thing that looks good. Yeah, for sure. Circling back to the notes, how much competition would you say? Like, is there lots of people going after these notes for the bank? And could that be bid up what they're going to sell for on the dollar? So it's all about how you source your notes. Like if you're not a lazy note investor, <laughs> that's going to sound bad, but like some people, there's certain platforms that you can buy notes on and they're set up just to sell notes to private investors. And there can be great deals there, but they can also be really picked through and they can be really competitive. But if you're willing to do a little bit of extra work and network with the actual banks, that's where you can find some really good deals without a lot of competition. And so I go on LinkedIn a lot and just, market constantly to different asset managers that work at various banks because there's just hundreds and hundreds of lending institutions and banks in the US and just building those relationships and routinely checking back with them month after month to see if they have any inventory and if you're willing to do that and grow your network then there really isn't a lot of competition there was actually a lot less competition than I was thinking when I first got into it so Oh, that's interesting. And then how would someone get started? Would you recommend taking somebody's course if they want to get into like buying notes or how do you actually get going in something like this? Yeah, I recommend Scott Carson. If you look him up, he's in Texas. He's been investing in notes for a really long time and has got some great programs. A lot of like weekend workshops that you can attend online for really cheap. And it's a good way to get your feet wet. He tells it straight and gives you actionable steps that you can take to get going. So there's others out there that their training is maybe more expensive and you're kind of stuck, but his is really actionable. So I recommend maybe looking Scott Carson up. Hey, once you buy a property and it goes into foreclosure, is your exit strategy to just wholesale it at that point, sell it to someone like a fix and flip, or do you have you ever done any rehab to it and then sold it that way? Well, again, it's all equity based. So you can assume that most investors that go to those foreclosure auctions are probably going to want to buy it at a slight discount. So it depends on how hot the market is, but you know, if the house is worth a hundred thousand, I expect that it's probably going to sell at the auction for 80,000 because people want a bit of a discount. So you need to assume if you're in it at 90,000, no one's probably going to bid on it, right? If you're into that note at 60,000, you're probably going to just sell it off to the highest bidder and you're going to get your money back, the amount that's owing on that loan. Okay. But if you're looking at probably taking that property back because there's no equity left in it, that's when you need to prepare to maybe do a fix and flip or keep it as a rental or maybe have a realtor on hand where you can list it right away on the MLS in as-is condition. So there's a lot of exit strategies that you can do after the foreclosure, but you need to just look at how much equity there is above your note value, the value owing on the note that you own, and that'll dictate what happens after the foreclosure. So it can be a really great way to acquire properties, right? Because if you go and foreclose, no one bids on it. Now you've got another property for your inventory that you can just keep long-term. And the other thing I mentioned earlier is that deed in lieu is an even better strategy if you've got equity is because you can negotiate with that seller and say, look, let's keep a foreclosure off of your credit. It's going to impact you for seven years. 
So what if we just did, you know, five grand to get you moved out of here, you deed the property back to us as the lender in lieu of a foreclosure, and you move on, we'll forget about this, it's not on your record, and then now we have the property. And the, that it would be, makes I see. Yeah, I can see that. And then, so you would be on title at that point, if the deed in lieu. Yeah, they just basically deed it back to you. Fascinating, man. I'm quite interested. This is an area that I really don't know much about, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will get a lot of value from this. Awesome. And then when you're looking at these notes, are you kind of looking at maybe property age as well as to whether it's you should even touch it or not? You can. Again, it depends on the strategy and the condition of it. There's some that you take a look at and you got to think like I could own this property someday, right? If I have to foreclose and no one bids and I end up taking this back, do I actually want this piece of garbage, right? So yeah, you have to look at the amount of equity and think to yourself, would I be okay owning this as a rental property or would I be okay fixing and flipping this if I had to? And that's a good rule of thumb. If you don't want to own it, don't buy the note on it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then for you yourself, I know obviously everything gets faster and your process gets more streamlined, but how long has it taken you to basically do your due diligence and analyze a note and then making that decision typically? It's pretty quick, actually. There's a company and I can you know pass on their information but they do a lot of due diligence for node investors. It's like a one-stop shop. So they'll set you up with a BPO from a local real estate agent. They have a huge network. They'll do the title search for you. If you want someone to drive by, they'll have someone do the drive by, even if after you own the note for a while. So they'll take care of all of the main things for you. And it's just a pay them one time and they coordinate it. So it doesn't matter what major city it's in, they'll take care of it. So I love that. His name is Dickie Baldwin in Texas. You can look him up, Baldwin and Associates, I believe. And they work nationwide. So it's like you have to pay a couple hundred bucks, but you get all your due diligence done and it's really quick. Then the other thing is your communication with the note seller. And if they're selling a mortgage note, then they should have good servicing. And again, servicing, they'll either hire a third party to service the mortgage. And that's basically doing all the bookkeeping. So they keep track of all the payments that have been made. And then they have detailed notes on all communication with that borrower, as well as like the credit score and everything they did up front when they finance that house to them. So you need to get all that from the seller. And if you don't have that, you should probably consider maybe walking away from that note because that's really important information as part of your due diligence process. So Yeah, yeah, I bet. And then what kind of ROI are you kind of targeting for yourself when you're doing these investments? Yeah, so a lot of what I do is with private investors. So people with self-directed IRA retirement accounts and that kind of thing. Um, even with Canadians I've worked with that fund deals. And so if we're working with another investor to fund the deal, the deal for me needs to generate about 15% because I usually pay my investors in the range of six to 10%. And so there needs to be a little bit extra for me and my company as well. And that's if it's a cash flowing note. If it's the one that we're going to foreclose on, that's our exit plan from day one and there's a lot of equity there, then you know the returns can be a bit higher. But looking at between 8 and 15%. Yeah, that's great. I think we'll have to have you back on the show, and we'll just dive into some other U.S. investing stuff. I know you're not wholesaling now, but it would be neat to kind of dig into your journey and how you went through the wholesaling process in the U.S., yeah. doing it Fun. remotely. Just kind of ending up, so just some quick answer questions. Do you have a favorite quote that you like to... Keep in mind when you're doing stuff. Sure. Actually, I've got two that I found recently. I saw you were going to ask that question. So I wrote them down. So life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. Aeneas Nin. I like that one a lot because a lot of things in real estate require you to get out of your comfort zone a little bit. 
and then you realize that they weren't that scary. So the more you're willing to jump out of your comfort zone, the bigger opportunities come, right? So that one, and then this one I found is really interesting. If you think you are too small to be effective, you've never been in the dark with a mosquito by Betty Reese. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's good. And yeah. how about a favorite movie or book? Well, for real estate, my favorite and the one that's really helped me the most is called Getting Things Done by David Allen. If you're one of those busy people that's trying to balance a job and a family and a real estate business and everything else, I really recommend reading that book and actually implementing step-by-step everything he says. And you'll be amazed at how much more you can take on in your life and just how clear your brain and how ordered and structured your life is. So getting things done by David Allen. I'll have to look that one up. And what kind of stuff do you like doing with your downtime? You go to the mountains. What do you guys do? Yeah, I'm really big into coaching my daughter's softball team. We got us as a family the past few years, we're kind of softball obsessed. So that's what we do in the spring and summer. And yeah, I like to go to the gym. I like to sauna. We like to hike. We do a little bit of snowboarding. And I also play guitar as well. So Nice. That's yeah. awesome, man. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you, reach out to you? It sounds like you're on LinkedIn or what other platforms are you on? Yep, LinkedIn. Probably the best way. If you want to talk about U.S. real estate, I'm happy to get on a call with you and just answer your questions. You can go to talkwithcalewing.com. And that'll take you to my calendar page and you you can just set up a time to have a chat over Zoom or a phone call or a coffee. And so, yeah, talkwithcalewing.com. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. Definitely a pleasure having you on. Yeah, Corey, thanks so much. It's great chatting with you and hope to do it again. For sure. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a master home inspection certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at Peckford Corey, or my website is coreypeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, Please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.